Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We're going to be starting in verse 21. You ever have one of those moments that just takes you way back? Maybe you experience something, or you hear something, or you smell something, and it just takes you back to a, another time in your life. Maybe you remember... You know, you smell something, it reminds you of something that your mother used to cook. Or you see somebody that looks like an old friend from back in the day, and you just start reminiscing. Well, this passage takes us way back, so to speak. Uh, Matthew 15, we're going to be starting at verse 21. And we've, we've read this passage before in reference in another sermon. But today we're going to sit on it because... It has a lot of implications that we need to, to see um, spelled out for us. Some of these elements do take us way back, way back into the Scriptures. An, un, an, un, um, an unconvention, In an unconventional way, I suppose. Let's read verses 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take a children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Lord, give us wisdom as we try to unfold the scriptures together. May we rightly divide it. May we not fall to the right or to the left. May we see your goodwill expressed in this scripture. May we learn from this Canaanite woman. May we learn from Jesus even more. It's in his name we hear. We gather. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Now this is a, it's, a, it's a, just an odd passage. I mean, Jesus is, is almost out of character in this passage. Most of the time, when we see Jesus being harsh with somebody, he's being harsh with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. He's not usually harsh with anybody else. In fact, he is very merciful and compassionate to the weak, the poor, the outcast, the people that nobody else loves, Jesus loves. But in this passage, this is what, this is, as I recall, the only passage where he is dealing harshly with someone who is not a religious leader, or dealing harshly with somebody who is naturally rejected by the people of God. And we're going to look into why. We're going to look into why she is naturally rejected by the people of God. We're going to see why Jesus dealt harshly with her. And through it all, we're going to see the mercy of God on display in how Jesus goes about his business with this woman. But I mentioned something about 
taken us back. This passage is filled with Jewish history. Just jam-packed with it. We're not going to spend all day looking at Jewish history, but we do need to pull out a few very important passages here. In Genesis chapter 12, um, we don't need to turn there together, but the Abrahamic covenant is listed out for the first time in Genesis chapter 12. This is, God came to Abraham before there was any such thing as a Jew, an Israelite, or anything like that. Abraham, he was the one guy that really comes to importance after Noah's flood. God visits Abraham. He gives him a command. He says, go out to a place you do not know, and I'm going to give it to you as an inheritance, and I am going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, the sands of the sea. Keeping in mind, Abraham had no children. His wife was barren. She couldn't have children. The miracles of God in developing a nation, preserving a nation, are all, all find their, their origins in the Abrahamic covenant, the seed of everything that is to come. How he creates a great nation, a great kingdom by a miracle, which is not so different than how things still are. How God is still making a great kingdom with miracles. The miracle of mercy. The miracle of the virgin birth. The miracle of salvation and forgiveness through somebody else dying for sins. The miracle of us not having to die for the sins that are ours to bear. This great kingdom of God has always been founded on miracles. And we see just the little seedling germinating in the Abrahamic covenant. And in the Abrahamic covenant, um, throughout the generations of the Old Testament, the Gentiles, because of the Abrahamic covenant, had almost become a byword among the Jews. The Gentiles had become a theme of depravity and immorality and idolatry and rejection. Uh, in the Abrahamic covenant, it was the, the Jews are singled out as God's chosen people, not the Jews, but Abraham's descendants who became the Jews. They're singled out as God's chosen people through whom he was going to work. Now, the Abrahamic covenant also lists that his people, his nation that he would develop through Abraham would be a blessing to all nations, which is fulfilled in the Messiah, Jesus Christ, bringing in all of the rest of the world into, this, into a covenant with him. But back in the Abrahamic covenant, God was making it clear that he was going to call out, choose, and work through, give his blessing upon Abraham and his descendants. And because of that, Abraham and Abraham's descendants hated the Gentiles. But, it, but this goes, so, and I, I bring that up because in this passage, we see Jesus traveling from, let's see here, he, the last place that he was was Genesaret, the land of Genesaret, which is in the northwest side of the Sea of Galilee. He travels to Tyre and Sidon, which is a Gentile land. It is not in Israel. This is the only time we really see Jesus traveling outside of Israel. It's another unique aspect about this passage. One, we see Jesus dealing very strangely with somebody out of character almost. We also see Jesus going to a Gentile nation, which is also out of character. He doesn't do this. 
This is the only time he does this. This is a very unique passage because of these things. We also see, though, that not only was she a Gentile from Tyre and Sidon, in verse 22 she is, told, she is said to have been a Canaanite woman. Now, if being a Gentile wasn't bad enough, being a Canaanite was even worse. I do want you to see in Genesis chapter 9, if you want to turn there with me, why this was so interesting that this is being drawn out. And Canaanites are not really referenced in the New Testament. This is the only time, if not one of the very few times, we even see the word Canaanite in the entire New Testament. We just don't see Canaanites referenced in the New Testament. Genesis chapter 9, starting in verse 18, it says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank. So this is after the flood had occurred, and they're starting to rebuild the earth, basically. He drank of the wine, he became drunk, and lay uncovered in his tent. A little awkward situation here. Verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, so just to explain there, Ham had Ham was the youngest son of Noah, and he dealt shamefully. He saw his father lying there naked. And instead of honoring him like the other two sons did, he made fun of him. He told his brothers what was going on. He was, he was dealing very dishonorably with his father. And because of that, Noah, when he wakes up and finds out what happened, he says in verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now, to give a little history... So Canaan comes from Ham, one of the sons of Noah, and he is receiving a curse from Noah. He doesn't curse Ham necessarily, he's cursing Canaan, from whom come the Canaanites, who were the people who dwelt in the land of Israel that God promised to Abraham. And Abraham was given the task, and his people were given the task to drive out and destroy the Canaanites and wipe them utterly from the face of the earth. Now, Shem would be the son, of, the son of Noah that the Jews come from. Japheth would be the son of Noah that the, Gentile, the rest of the Gentiles come from. So we see that there are three distinguishing um, nations that come from these sons of Noah. And while the sons of Japheth, being Gentiles, they were left without the law of God, they were despised by the Jews because the Jews were the ones given the distinct eye and the, the love of God in the Old Testament, the sons of Canaan were even worse off because they had God didn't tell Abraham's descendants to destroy all the Gentiles. God told the descendants of Abraham to destroy all the Canaanites. They were supposed to be completely wiped off the face of the planet. 
In Deuteronomy chapter 7, we see that spelled out. Um, you can look at that if you want on your own, but for the sake of time, I'm not going to turn there with you. But that's where, where God tells the people distinctly that you're going to go and dwell in the land of the Canaanites. You're going to drive them out and utterly destroy them. And I'm going to be with you in it. And that all finds its roots back in the curse brought upon the descendants of Canaan from Noah. They were supposed to be a distinctly depraved people, forgotten and cast out. They were even supposed to be the, the servants to the Gentiles. So we, like I told you, this takes us way back, and it's taken us way back to the very first things right after Noah's flood. And here, in our passage back here in Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is confronted in, this, in, a, in a Gentile city of Tyre and Sidon by a Canaanite woman. In verses 1 through 20 of this chapter, which we saw last week, we have Jesus rebuking Pharisees for adding to the law of God. Today we see Jesus remembering the Old Covenant and God's strict devotion to the Jews. But we are also going to witness an important turn of events in the Scriptures unto the praise and the glory of God, which will also remember the heart and eternal intent of the Old Covenant given to Abraham. Now, I hope, you, I hope you've been hanging on. This is a lot of background information, but it's very important to where this story is going. If you don't remember all the details, that's fine. But please try to hang on to at least the point here. First... Before we dive even further into this, we must realize that these events are not happenstance. I mentioned that the last location that we know Jesus was was in the land of Gennesaret um, from uh, chapter 14 of Matthew, verse 34. From Gennesaret to Tyre and Sidon is between, depending on what part you'd travel to, is between 30 and 50 miles of walking. Jesus and his disciples, they walked everywhere. That's 30 to 50 miles of walking up to a Gentile nation where Jesus is already saying, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Why is he even there in the first place? Why is Jesus even in this nation? We have to realize that these events are not happenstance. I don't know about you, but I believe in a proactive Christ, not a reactive Christ. Everything that Jesus does is for a reason. All throughout the scriptures, we see God being proactive, not reactive. Even when it seems God is being reactive, we have to realize that God, an eternal God with an eternal mind, who knows everything, sees everything, is all wise, cannot be a reactive God if he is truly God. He is a proactive God all throughout the scriptures. He is making his will come to pass from page one to page last in the scriptures, and beyond. <laughs> that is the God we serve. That is the God that the Bible portrays. portrays. We even saw that in the, in the passage from Ephesians that Brother Rich read earlier, that everything that he has willed is coming to pass according to his grace and his mercy. We have to realize that these events in this passage are not happenstance. Jesus is not just reacting to this woman. He walked 30 to 50 miles to a land where he doesn't even, you know, so to speak, he doesn't even belong. And this is the only thing he does there, that it's recorded. He doesn't do anything. After the, the very next verse in 29, Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee. Goes 50 miles this way, does this little thing, comes 50 miles back. 
mean, what was he doing? Was there a nice resort in Tyre that he wanted to go and hang out at for a little while? No, I believe that he was there for this specific reason. It's not a stop on the way to anywhere else. In verse 22, we pick up the conversation with the Canaanite woman, and it says, And behold, a Canaanite woman came from that region and came out crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. Look at what she says here. We're going to stop there for a second. Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. One, we see in how she approaches Jesus that she does not deserve to receive what she is asking for. She does not deserve what she's asking for. She is coming in humility and submission because she knows, she, in what she fo- says that follows, she knows who she's approaching. More than even most of the Jews realize who Jesus is, this Gentile Canaanite woman knows who Jesus is and what he can do. She's asking for mercy. Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 9. Say, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in, once you, in which you once walked. Who's he talking to? He's talking to people who have come to Christ by faith. He's talking to God's people. He says to God's people, You were dead in the trespasses and sins in once in which you once walked. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been dead? Do you have you ever been able to admit that my soul is dead and has nothing to offer? And this it was dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince and the power of the air, and the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh. Have you ever admitted? Because this is the Scriptures. He is saying we have all been there. We have all been in a place where we we were walking according to the passions of our flesh. Have you ever admitted that? Have you ever humbled yourself before God and admitting, "I, I agree with Scriptures. I agree that I have or am depraved. And I have been walking the wrong path. Or have, can we never, have we never really admitted to this? I've always been kind of a good person. You know, I may not be perfect, nobody's perfect, but I'm generally a good person, relatively acceptable because, you know, I don't hurt anybody really. You know, I do good, come to church, read my Bible sometimes. But have you ever been able to admit, according to the Scriptures, that we have all lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, which are not just sins. It's also including just living for yourself, just living for your own success, living so that you can die happy and successful. That's part of that. That's part of the world's problem, is we don't care for the kingdom of God. We care for only for my kingdom. But in verse 4, the good news, this is the mercy, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which He loved us, 
Even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were that person that we're supposed to admit to having been, even when we were that ugly, dead person, God, rich in mercy, because of His great love, He loved us when we were sinners, when we were depraved, when we were without hope. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. Because of the great love with which He loved us. Not because you kept the right rules. Not because you did the right stuff, but because of the great love with which He loved you. He saved you. He gave you Christ. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have everlasting life. Even when we were, this, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable rich of his, riches of his grace and kindness towards us, in Jesus Christ, not in paying you back for all the sacrifices you made, but in Christ. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. See, this woman in Matthew 15, she understood, it. She understood her need for mercy. She understood that there was absolutely no reason why Jesus would even invite her into his presence. There was no reason. She knew it. She knew that there was no reason why Jesus should ever entertain her request. That's what it means to come before God asking for mercy. That's exactly what that means. You understand you have no reason to be there. You have no right to be in his presence. There's no reason why he should answer you. And give you what you're asking for. That's what it means to, ha to be asking for mercy. But then we go on. Number So one, she understands that she does not deserve to receive what she's asking for. Number two, she understands that Jesus is Lord. What is Lord? Master. King. She understands that Jesus is Lord, her Master, and that she must submit herself to Him. She understood that. He hadn't even ever been there before. But somehow she just knew that Jesus being Lord, she has to submit to His ways and His wisdom and His desires. In Acts 16, verse 30, the jailer in Philippi says, Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And he said, Believe. In the Lord, Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. He's saying you must believe in the Lord, Jesus Christ. Not, I mean, Jesus is our friend, but he's not saying, believe in your counselor, Jesus Christ, your advisor, Jesus Christ, your Lord. Jesus. See, an advisor has no authority over you. A friend has no authority over you. Even though Jesus is our friend, he's our advisor, he's our counselor. But he is also our Lord in whom we put our faith. That means he has authority over us. Have we ever recognized Christ's authority over us? 
In Matthew chapter 6, this is the Lord's Prayer even. Most of us are, have been familiar with the Lord's Prayer since we were children. Matthew chapter 6, have you ever read it this way? Starting in verse 7, and Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. And when, he says, when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this. Okay, here's the meat of this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed or holy, high, separated, be your name, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The entire first portion of the Lord's Prayer is submission to God as Father and as Sovereign of the universe. And then he says, then you can pray for your needs. You start by recognizing who, he, who it is that you're praying to. And this woman, this Canaanite woman, understood who she was talking to. She understood that Jesus was Lord. She acknowledged her master-servant relationship prior to her petition. Number three, not only did she understand that she did not deserve to receive what she was asking for, not only did she understand that Jesus is her master, her Lord, but she also knew that Jesus was the son of David, which is actually a very distinct um, prophecy given to the Jews in the Law and the Prophets. There's no reason why any Gentile should really be tossing around this name. Son of David? That's a distinctly Jewish term for the Messiah, the anointed one, the one who would come and save the Jews and establish Israel as a great nation. Or God's people, I should say, as a great nation. There's no reason why this Gentile Canaanite should be recognizing him as the son of David. It did her no good, according to what the people thought about the son of David and what he would come to do, because she wasn't a Jew. According to the teachings of the Jews, the Messiah would come for the Jews. He wasn't coming for her, according to what she had probably been taught. In, Matthew, in the book of Matthew, the, the term the son of David is listed six times, which is the most of any book in the scriptures. Matthew, one of the reasons I wanted to go through the book of Matthew is with you all so that we could tie Jesus to everything that he was according to the Old Testament because Matthew focuses on Jesus, the promised Messiah that everybody's been waiting for <laughs> from the very beginning. That's his perspective on things. And we see it here in this passage. This Canaanite woman knew that Jesus was the son of David who was the promised one who would establish and renew God's reign in Israel and eventually over the whole world. Isaiah 11, which occurs after the covenant with David. 2 Samuel 7 records the original covenant with David that where God promises David that his descendants would always be on the throne. Isaiah 11 brings in this idea that the son of David, the promised son, would also reign over the world and the whole world would seek him. And really, this is, this is reminiscent of the story of Rahab and the harlot. I mean, while I was reading this passage, I mean, I just couldn't stop thinking of, um, this, of this story in the book of Joshua, which I'll read to you real quickly. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab was a Canaanite woman, a prostitute. <laughs> the, the, first, the first city that is overthrown once... Abraham's descendants come into the land that was promised to them, the first city that's overthrown according to the promise of God, Jericho, Rahab. This is a Canaanite woman dwelling in the land of Canaan. 
the first overthrow, this woman of ill repute. Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, the, the, uh, the spies had come into town. They were the soldiers in Jericho were searching for them. They're hiding in Rahab's house. And Rahab said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Gog, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, He is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. <laughs> I mean, the humility there. <laughs> the humility. Now then, and then she requests, Now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house and give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father, my mother, my brothers and sisters and all who dwell to them, belong to them and deliver our lives from death. This Canaanite woman is recognizing the glory and the power of the one true God because of what she has heard about him what they had seen his people doing. And she recognizes that to these spies and then offer, asks for a request. I mean, isn't that the same thing that's going on here? This woman, this Canaanite woman in Tyre and Sidon in Matthew 15 is recognizing who Jesus is. He, she knows who he is. She knows what he's come to do. Before offering any petition, she, request, she acknowledges, his, acknowledges his glory. And after she does these three things, she asks, she asks for mercy. She recognizes him, right, recognizes him as Lord and Master. She recognizes him as the promised son of David who had come and establish and renew God's reign in Israel and over the world. Now she offers her request. Verse 20, the end of verse 22. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. In verse 23, this is where we kind of see Jesus acting a little out of character. But he did not answer her a word. He ignores her. And you know, it's interesting because what's the first thing she asked for? Mercy. She knows she doesn't deserve for Christ to acknowledge her. And what's the first thing that Christ does? He ignores her. Would that take you off guard? Would that make you bitter? If that were you? If that were you? Because really, if you were to become bitter, that would really show some insincerity in your cry for mercy. Because if you say you know you don't deserve for him to acknowledge you, and then he doesn't acknowledge you, why would you be bitter? The thing that you know is supposed to happen is happening. You know you're, you know you only deserve the ignorance of God. That's why you're asking for mercy. And, I th and Jesus is testing this woman's faith. Like I said, he's a proactive Jesus. He's not reactive. He's not really has any, he doesn't really hold any animosity towards this woman. Jesus, in, the, in John 3, he says, I have not come to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through me. He doesn't have any animosity towards this woman. He's testing her faith. He's saying, Are you, do you really think you, deserve, you need mercy? Or do you, is there a part of you that thinks you deserve to be heard? 
He ignores her. He did not answer her word. Going on to verse 23, And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he doesn't deny them their request. First, she reminds her through ignoring her that she's unworthy, (laughs) even to be heard, that she does not even deserve to be in his presence. The disciples now, they want to send her away. Jesus does not deny their request. What does he say? He says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. He was agreeing with his disciples. She could be sent away because he wasn't. He didn't come for her. He was trying to make that clear to her. I didn't come for you. Again, to test her faith. Again, in verse 25, but she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. So at this point, up until now, she's probably crying out, you know, outside of the house or through the window or, you know, trying to push her way through the crowd. And now, and Jesus is ignoring her and now verbally rejecting her. Now she forces her way into his presence and kneels before him and cries out to him simply, Lord, help me. Her request is so simple. She knows she needs mercy. And all and the only words that she can speak at this point are, Lord, help me. Have you ever been there? Have you ever been to a place in your life where the only thing you could say is, Lord, help me. I don't know what else to say. I've been there many times. You've been there, most likely. Have you ever been in a tough situation? You were swamped. You were overwhelmed. You were drowning. All you could say is, Lord, help me. She's doing that because she loves her daughter and her daughter is being oppressed by a demon. Have you ever been there because of your own sins? Was that your conversion experience? Where you were so faced with with the destruction that you deserved? For the wages of sin is death. Have you been so knowledgeable an understanding of what you truly deserve, that the only thing that you can say is, Lord, help me. I have no wise words to offer you as to why you should help me. All I can say is, Lord, help me. I need your mercy. Have you ever been there? Or after your conversion, yet you still struggle with your sins. All you can say is, Lord, help me. (laughs) Lord, help me. I can't do this. Verse 26, you think at this point his, his compassion would kick in. But he says, he answered, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Again, he reminding her, I'm here to do this kind of stuff for the Jews, for the people of God. I'm not here to do this type of thing for you. Again, you think his compassion would kick in. I mean, wouldn't your compassion kick in at this point? <laughs> Even if you're trying to test somebody, don't you think you would kind of give a little break by now? He keeps pushing. He verbally refuses her again. In verse 27, she responds. Well, first, you have to notice what she actually said to her. It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She calls her a dog. Even today, that's a horrible thing to call a woman. Let alone back in this day where dogs weren't actually cute and fluffy and you know you had little purse dogs and, <laughs> and all that kind of thing. They didn't have purse dogs. <laughs> they didn't have that. They didn't see dogs as being something like that. They were work dogs or they were, 
you know, the, the things that cleaned up all the, you know, the garbage outside. You know, they were the bottom feeders, scavengers, mangy. Nobody had little Pomeranians getting snipped into little teddy bears. <laughs> no, dogs were disgusting, gross. People didn't bathe them. They just roamed outside. But in verse 27, she doesn't take offense. She doesn't take offense. She, reviews, she, re, she receives the rebuke as valid. Look at how she responds. She says, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. What humble wisdom. Where she is still asking for mercy while also acknowledging her, her desperate need for mercy. And, I mean, Jesus is always the one who is known for, be, for answering with the words of wisdom. People that Jesus talks to don't usually respond with words of wisdom. It's always Jesus responding to other people with words of wisdom. But here, this woman, because of her great faith and her true, sincere humility, actually sees things the way Jesus sees them. That's our problem. We don't want to see things the way Jesus sees them because that requires too much humility and sacrifice. But she is so in need of mercy, she, is, she sees things eye to eye with Jesus because of her humility and her meekness. She's not trying to do her own thing here and just hope Jesus will kind of bless her and send her on her way. You know, he's the one who's here to just make my dreams come true. He comes up behind me and he kind of makes everything that I do work out. That's not the Jesus of the scriptures. The Jesus of the scriptures is not our butler, he's our master. And she sees Jesus for who he is. And he, he, she agrees with her. She sees things the way he sees them so she can actually enter into his wisdom. That's necessary. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You have to enter in to agree, agreement with God, seeing things his way, if you ever want to actually be wise. That's why so many people on Facebook look like fools. Because nobody wants to see things God's way. Everybody wants God to, think, to see things their way. Yes, Lord, even the dogs, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. <laughs> Charles Spurgeon once said, If any man thinks ill of you, do not be angry with him, for you are worse than he, you think you, you are worse than he thinks you to be. <laughs> We've been going through the Pilgrim's Progress in the afternoon service, and we went through a conversation with an interaction that Christian, the main character, had with Apollyon, who is representative of the devil. And Apollyon reminds Christian of all his failures, to which Christian responds, All of this is true, and much more which you have left out, but the prince whom I serve and honor is merciful and ready to forgive. Also, Apollyon goes on to portray God as distant. You know, God is not coming to your side when you need help. And Christian responds, His forbearing at present to deliver us is on purpose, to try our love, whether we will cleave to Him in the end. Jesus is doing this to this woman. He is testing her. Not truly rejecting her, but testing her to see if her faith will endure. 
if she will continue to cleave to him to the end. And see, have we seen the progression of her faith? First, she's asking from outside. Now she's kneeling in his presence. Now she is in perfect agreement with his insults. She is not going to let go because she needs Jesus. And only Jesus can help her. She is ready to receive rebuke, for she knows that she is not worthy of Christ's affection. She is not even worthy of a presence in his company. She continues to cleave to him, even though he seems to be ignoring, rejecting, and even bullying her. Now let's see verse 28. <laughs> then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was instantly healed. The the climax that we've all been waiting for for Jesus to just come on Jesus just do it don't you see how she deserves it right no that's the whole point she doesn't deserve it that's why we think she deserves it because she's so much she's so humble right from the outside perspective looking in we think she deserves it because of her because of her um, humility but humility is exactly that recognizing that I don't deserve it what we should see is a woman who doesn't deserve Jesus and receives mercy from Jesus. And we should put ourselves into this story and see ourselves as this woman. I don't deserve the mercy. That's why it's mercy. Mercy is getting something that I don't deserve. If you think you deserve it because you're humble, then you don't understand humility. <laughs> to humbly beseech the Lord for His mercy is to come into agreement with God that you don't deserve His love. You have never done anything to deserve it. You will never do anything to deserve it. Keep that perspective. I mean, John 3.16 is, is one of those medallion verses that people wear with them that they can reference most of the time. Keep this perspective. For God so loved the world. So meaning in this way. For in this way God loved the world. He gave His only begotten Son. He gave His Son to us not because we deserve it, but because He loves us. And he's rich in mercy. <laughs> His mercy is a flowing fountain without end. And all we must do is empty ourselves of any self-worth so that we can have all the eternal worth from God. At the end of this discourse, once this woman has finished her series through the obstacle course for persistent faith, Christ commends her and grants her request. He doesn't commend anybody like this in Scripture. A couple people come close, but she receives the greatest commendation for her faith. And here's her process, just to review. Here's her process that we see through this passage. She knew who Christ was. She was confident in His power. She was humbly aware of her own unworthiness. She set her mind on His mercy. She endured rejection and humiliation. She offered nothing. She clung to Christ. And at the end of all of this, she received His blessing. That's her process, briefly stated throughout this passage. And we must enter into that. One, our salvation follows the same game plan according to Ephesians 2.11-16, which we read earlier. One, we recognize that Christ is our only Savior. 
We are confident in his power to save. We recognize that we have no hope outside of him. We set our desire upon his mercy. We do not let our sin and our unworthiness keep us out of his presence. We do not bring any offering to vouch for ourselves. We hold fast to Christ and we receive his mercy and his salvation. That is what we see in this passage. We could keep going. But we cannot, I mean, we need to see this passage as one of the great turning points in the New Testament. In it, we see clearly an entire gospel message. In other, in other stories, we see bits and pieces, but in this story, we see an entire gospel presentation. And it all revolves around mercy the love and the compassion of Christ in a passage that looks like it's completely void of compassion up until the last second. But in it we see the compassion of God through the mercy of Jesus Christ. And we join in with her, humbly falling on our knees, beseeching the Lord for the same mercy. And as my challenge to you, if you've never actually really felt like you needed mercy, if you've never really felt unworthy, I I ask you to pray that you would feel it because it's true and you must see it if you're ever going to be saved. Creeds are only as powerful as what they stand for. You can't just adopt a creed and expect to be saved. You have to see what it actually stands for, the Christ behind it, the mercy that we need from him, the great love of God that is the foundation for all of these things. So today when you go home, ask the Lord to show you your great need of him so that you can actually see it and sense it with your whole being. Maybe you have done this before. Perhaps you are truly saved, but maybe you've lost sense of this. You've lost sight of reality. You're no longer walking in agreement with God. You're simply trying to live out the best life you possibly can until the day you die. We need to pray this. We need to renew our faith in Christ in this manner. Let's pray. Lord, I, I pray for your mercy to fall on all of us. I pray that you mercifully would give us a true perception of ourselves. That we would not be puffed up as though we were something. But Lord, may we see Jesus high and lifted up. It is not that we, it is not that we, are to, that we want to focus on how little we are, but how great Jesus is. Show us the truth. Grant to us the humility of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.